Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Please do give us your feedback on the show. Your views are so important in helping us to create the podcast that you want. It really is your podcast. So please now take the short one minute survey at cafe direct forward slash podcast and we'll send you a bag of our speciality anniversary coffee to say thank you. The survey is live until the 31st of December, so please do it now. Our truly fabulous guest this week is Cressy Wesling. Cressy is an environmental entrepreneur who set up Elvis and Cressy, a company that makes gorgeous luxury accessories from reclaimed waste materials. Cressy inspires us to think about the huge potential of the waste that normally we throw away and goes into landfill and how we can make something truly special out of it. We'll get Cressy's thoughts on what solutions are needed to tackle waste, which is one of the biggest environmental challenges we face, and hear about the remarkable regenerative agriculture project that she's currently undertaking. Lovely to see you. And um, I mean, it would be great just to start to hear, you know, how did Elvis and Cressy start? What was the moment? How did you come to start out? Absolutely. And certainly there might be, I am just sitting in a room above our workshop at the moment. So there might be some noises that come through. I can't really control those. There's not a quiet space on the farm. So effectively, we started with a problem. You know, I came to the UK in 2004 and I was immediately drawn into to the waste space just because I'm fascinated by it. I don't, I don't understand waste as a, as a concept. So I wanted to get to grips with the waste situation in my new home. I discovered at the British Library that we produce something like 100 million tons a year. This was 2004, right? So you couldn't just Google the ONS data on it. And I started going to landfill sites to look at what this comprised. You know, what is it? 30% construction waste. What does that mean? What does that look like? And at the same time, I was doing an ISO 14001 auditing course so that anything I did in the future, I'd be able to look at through the lens of environmental improvement. Like how could you look at a process and then continue to improve your environmental outcomes over time. It was hideously dull. And at the back of that room were some firemen who were also on the same course. And I said, why are you guys here? And they, they talked about their decommissioned fire hose. So I went to see it get stacked up on a beautiful rooftop in Croydon. That's effectively where hoses go to die, I guess. And when I saw it, I thought this is so beautiful and so wonderful. What can be done? I just immediately said, look, I'll take it. I'll fix it. And if I make any money doing it, I'll give you half. That was day one. And that became the pillars of the company, rescue, transform, donate. So I had rescue at day one. I had donate at day one, but transform, I had no idea what we would do. And that's what sent me back to the British Library to do more research into nitrile rubber, which is the material that makes up hose. I went to Yorkshire to where hoses are made. I learned about its melting point, its properties, how much, where, everything. And I discovered that a very similar material has been used in the luxury sector for decades and thought, you know what? I can disrupt that industry. I can disrupt it with a single fire hose. That's where Transform came and that's why we turn it into luxury goods. Of course, for the first year, we could only make belts because they were easy. But yeah, that's that's how we started. 
Well, it's also setting an example, isn't it? I mean, some people would go, well, that's only three out of 100, but it's actually showing that the focus on it and the change in behavior on something, you know, means that it can be done, can't it? The best thing that we can do, whether we're small social enterprises or not, is model best practice. So if you think about, I always hoped that this is what would happen with Cafe Direct, you know, that you've got these lovely packets of coffee that say fair trade on them. And I always thought what would happen is actually all the rest of the coffee brands should have to say unfair. <laughs> there, should be, there should be that, yes. <laughs> it would be really hard to be like, I'm just going to buy this unfairly traded coffee. And for us, I think using a rescued material and being really intentional about it, putting all kinds of creativity and love and joy and craftsmanship into it, and then giving 50% of the profit to firefighters, what we were trying to do there wasn't solve the whole British waste problem or change the luxury industry overnight. We did want to show what was possible. We didn't want to campaign for that. You know, we just wanted to, all of these people who say it's too hard, it's too difficult, change takes time. We just wanted to say, nah, it doesn't. <laughs> too, too right. I think that those ones need to get out of the way whilst the rest of us show it can be done. And yeah, no, I think it's really kind thought about Cafe Direct. I mean, it's the same kind of stuff. We're showing this example, but we are a minuscule amount of the, the coffee market. And unless you change the 95%, it's controlled by three large businesses. We had a, a board meeting recently where we have the farmers on the on the board and the farmer from Peru was saying, on the one hand, how wonderful it is working with Cafe Direct and being part of the family. But on the other hand, he was using the words that were saying, but your efforts are diluted because every time you're doing the work with us and you're paying the extra price and giving us the investment to have capacity and change, the other 95% of people who trade with us are taking the average price down and taking the impact down. And so he he was quite passionate about the dilutive effect. It wouldn't it be great if they all had to say unfair? This is something Elvis feels very strongly about, that you should have whole unfair aisles in the supermarket. You should have unfair you know, stores where the clothing is clearly made by modern slavery tactics and degraded and exploited supply chains and environmental practice. It should just have to say that straight out on the tin. Because particularly in the industry I'm in, I, there was this amazing report that came out in 2019 by the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion. So these are people whose whole job is to understand the industry. And they said in the last 10 years, despite more talk about sustainability than you can possibly imagine, nothing has been done. And in fact, those tiny little efforts that have been done have been celebrated to such a degree that most people think that the vast majority of fashion is sustainable. And the growth in the industry alone means that any tiny little change that has been achieved is just wiped out. So exactly what you were talking about, the dilutive effect. Coming back to Elvis and Cressy, I mean, it's, you've got this wonderful position where you're creating wonderful things from materials that otherwise would just be going to waste. And so, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you is, why that's so important. I mean, it's relatively self-evident, but to you personally, why, why is that so important? Well, you, you could take it back to sort of, you know, a childhood in Canada where reduce, reuse, recycle <laughs> was drummed into our heads and very much as a hierarchy. So the first thing that we have to do is to reduce our overall consumption. The second thing is reuse. And the reason why I'm so passionate about that is that I just think we haven't applied our creative imaginations 
to all of these wonderful materials that are out there. Even in some of the reports issued by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation about circular economy for textiles, they'll say things like a thousand kilos of waste textiles should be worth two to three thousand US dollars. That's crazy low. You know, we're setting the bar too low. If I take a ton of decommissioned fire hose and transform it, we create 60,000 pounds of value, not 3,000. 60,000. We're getting better Mm -hmm. ratios of return than the alchemists (laughs) were after. And so I'm passionate about the creativity and really deciding that the best thing that we can do with that sort of energy is make something spectacular that, yes, does inspire people to look around themselves and look at the other materials that are languishing. Let's look again at sewage, for example. Let's look again at wastewater. Let's not just willy-nilly accept these hideous companies putting it into the rivers and and streams when actually it has value. It has nutrients in it. It has heat in it. And we're just letting all of that go. It's crazy, but it's also, it feels actionable, doesn't it? It feels like with a bit of creativity and a bit of curiosity, you can think a bit harder and just make a bigger difference. It's within people's grasp. Definitely. Certainly in in coffee, I remember meeting a guy called Arthur a few years ago who started a thing called BioBean that has a reusing plant in Cambridgeshire that takes all the coffee grounds and then makes them into primarily, I suppose, fuel. So for consumers, he created these coffee logs that you you have rather than burning wood. So in a way, not only is he reusing the coffee grounds, but he's stopping the use of wood as well. So that's quite a handy thing. There's no end to what you can do. And I think for us specifically by targeting the luxury industry, we were targeting another structural failure. So waste is a structural failure. It's something that we just shouldn't have. I mean, come on, our great grandparents didn't produce any. So why should we? Why why are we allowed to learn these bad habits? And then when I started looking at luxury, really in the early days of business, and this is why we're in this industry, it's because the World Wildlife Fund had a report on all the luxury businesses and their ethical and their environmental performance, and none of them were scoring above a C plus. And I thought with all of this so-called creativity and the talent and the money, they're not doing better than that. And they, they weren't, and they still aren't. And that's what you know you mentioned when we first started chatting, is that we've got to stop kind of talking about the money because money isn't really interesting. Impact is interesting. The world is is not in a great state. It hasn't been for my entire lifetime. You know, I was born in 1977. We've been on a downhill slide. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and the only way to, to get that back is for people to take responsibility for biodiversity loss, for people to take responsibility for their their carbon, not just the carbon that they're utilizing today, but the carbon that they've utilized in their in their lifetime or in the lifetime of their business. And the luxury sector just doesn't have a grip on that at all. And they certainly overproduce and they certainly foster overconsumption. And it all gets sold as wonderful, magical and beautiful. And I think it's a big lie because to me, you can't say that something is the product of a creative process when the road behind you that you've traveled to get there is paved in the destruction of the environment and the exploitation of supply chains. You're just not creative. Yeah, it doesn't feel luxury. It's the wrong word, isn't it? I mean, it means that whole industry is repositioned, really, because it's such an extractive process and a destructive societal environmental process that there's nothing luxurious about it at all. It's just really quite quite a negative thing. So, um, yeah, no, it's a really important insight because Elvis and Cressy, you, you get all the beauty of the products because you design some wonderful things. 
But you get the beauty of the way you've done that as well. Every decision is important. I think that's the other thing that we talk about. I mean, Elvis designs the products, so I can't take any credit for that. He's definitely the creative genius. But I design a, a business and a business that means everyone can be paid well and that it's in a beautiful location and that it runs on renewable energy and that it has bigger, wider ambitions for society and that it's a lovely place to be. We had an apprentice who came to us from France. And in France, if you want to get into luxury production, you become part of this thing called Compagnon de Devoir and you spend five years training and with different luxury companies. And I think she came to us from Louis Vuitton and went to <laughs> Chanel afterwards. So it was kind of like, if I put this in an egocentric way, I would say from the ridiculous to the sublime to the ridiculous <laughs> again. And she just said it was kind of horrible because at both of those companies, she was sitting at a machine all day doing the same repetitive process, the kind of thing you associate more with fast fashion. Whereas when she was with us, she was learning everything, not just about production, but about how the business ran, about all the members of the team, about what everyone's goals were for a more just society. And I can't wait till she finishes this five years so we can get her back. <laughs> I mean, how many people do you have in, in Elvis and Cressy, roughly? So there are 25 <laughs> okay, okay. of us, but we're across two locations. So we're we're still tiny, but we're a really, really annoying fly in the in the nose of the bull, I would say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we make a lot of noise for the size of company that we... No, you, you certainly do. And it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I mentioned people and um, it's all about how you measure the size of a company, isn't it? People is just one way of looking at it. But I, what I love, because, you know, we only have 30 people at Cafe Direct, and I just love the fact that you can all know each other with such depth and with such uh, kind of genuine understanding. And then you can all get lined up, as you're saying, people are not sitting there in a narrow transactional role in work. They're, they're part of something more special, I think, that way. Yes. I wouldn't want to run a, an organization where it was that large that I just didn't know who really worked there. I would find that incredibly stressful. Some of the companies that we work with and that we have partnerships with have tens of thousands of employees. And they don't know who's in their supply chain. That's where things tend to go wrong. When you, you actually couldn't draw a picture of your supply chain because you don't actually know where everything is made at any given point in time. And I would find that incredibly stressful because that's where the abuse can creep in. That's where illegal practices with respect to, to labor can take place. Now, if you don't know where, you don't know kind of how and why, do you? So, you know, it'd be very stressful. No, I think 25 people can change the world and it's much more exciting and engaging so talk a little bit about the business model because you touched on the way you founded it and the fireman's hoses. You touched on reinvesting profitability. Talk a little bit more about the, the, the way the, the model functions. It's really simple. We do three things. We rescue, we transform, and we donate so that we focus on niche wastes that have not found a way in traditional recycling, whether that be of the fire hose, whether that be the offcuts that we recollect from Burberry from their leather goods production, whether that be tea sack. Tea generally gets imported into the country in paper sacks. And the final layer of that paper is foil and polyethylene coated, which means the whole sack can't be recycled, but it can be reused if it comes to us and we iron it flat and separate the layers manually. And that's how we make our own packaging. So we're, we're quite obsessed with doing as much as we can at every stage of the process using materials that exist already, whether it be packaging or lining or accessories or, or in fact, the products themselves. Because I've always found it very odd when you have a great eco product that's in 
a box and loads and loads of tissue paper up on that. Increasingly, it jars, doesn't it? When it turns up, increasingly, you think, hang on. Yeah. Why is that like that? And and certainly, I think I felt that over the last seven or eight years with things like when you get those farm boxes and stuff, but actually all those kind of very natural fruit and veg are then packed in a way that's perhaps not in keeping with that. Yeah, then there's there's loads of plastic around, which is not great because we don't have solutions for things. And I, I'm one of these people that would love to legislate more because I don't think we should be allowed to have raw materials in single-use format in the UK that we can't recycle here and that we're let's face it, not prepared to recycle here. And that could be, you know, clothing that people, you know, a two pound t-shirt, which is just exploitation period, but that's a single use good. If someone's values it so little in the first place, it, it becomes a single use good. And all it is, is, you know, microfibers in the sea and then textile waste that shit gets shipped off to another country. If we're not prepared to recycle it here and deal with it here, not so sure we'd be, we should be allowed to import it or produce it. We should be limiting the number of polymer types to those that we can recycle. We should be saying, look, you can have aluminium and glass packaging, maybe PET as well, but these are the three types. Now go off and be creative with that, with that landscape of materials, come up with solutions that mean we don't have to continue to build incinerators. I do think we need more legislation because the market's never been free. It's been subsidized by the planet and its people, and we need to turn that around. Yeah, I you know run my my little company here, but I so just instinctively feel that legislation is is required because it's a way of making change. Now it it sort of forces the the hand a bit, doesn't it? And it levels the playing field because, to a certain extent, let's say this language of sustainability, which is now everywhere, every single fashion brand I see, they'll use the word sustainable somewhere. <laughs> And it's become meaningless and it's really depressing. And But actually, if there were a carbon tax, then you would quickly get to understand why a product like mine made from waste would win because there is no new embodied carbon in anything that we do. In fact, because we're rescuing things that would otherwise go to landfill, we start from a negative carbon position. So we would win because our, our goods would stay at the prices they're at, the realistic prices where they where they are. They wouldn't then have to balloon to take account of finally pricing in the collateral damage that that some of the the companies definitely know they're causing. They just think that putting in, you know, 1% organic cotton into a (laughs) t-shirt changes the game. Yeah, that's commitment for you. eh? So Elvis Gressler, you've partnered with Burberry. Now, I don't know anything about things like Burberry and stuff, but I think it's a huge luxury business or something. What's that partnership all about? We started with the fire hose and then quickly branched out into other materials. But in, let's say, 2010, we had gotten to grips with the fire hose problem. We were able to rescue all of London's hoses every year and it were expanding beyond London. So that first big problem we took on, we had solved. And I thought, now nah, it's time for something bigger. Because I'm obsessed with reading these UN reports, whether it be about climate change or manure, <laughs> you know, I read something about the leather waste issue and that we were producing 800,000 tons a year globally of offcut. And this is because a cowhide is shaped the way a cowhide is shaped and companies cut out the pieces they want. And the stretch marks and the scratch marks and the excess just falls to the cutting room floor. And we talk about single-use goods, but this is a never-been-used good. 
and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's just been tanned, which means an and a huge amount of utility has gone into it. Why not love that too? And in, I think you have to sort of cast your memory back to 2010. You know, people were starting to talk about the circular economy a bit, but nobody was designing for it. And I thought this is the best opportunity to do that because we shouldn't be designing goods per se. We should be designing a system, a Lego-like system that means the world's leather waste issues can be solved where they are. Because I, I never wanted 800,000 tons of material to come and find me in Kent. I didn't want to take on responsibility for all of it. So we, well, Elvis, again, designed this incredible system that basically does exactly what I asked him to do. It turns, you know, seemingly useless bits of scrap into a Lego-like component that can be woven and rewoven over time. And I presented this at an event in London and said, yep, yeah, here we've done it. No money. Just at the time, there was two of us in the business and we've solved the world's leather waste problem. Here you go. And there was some people from Burberry at this event and they came up to me afterwards and said, you know, we, we have some leather offcuts. And I said, yeah, sure you do. And it then took us, and this gives you an idea of the pace at which large companies move, it then took until 2017 to launch the partnership. Is that seven years? That is seven years, yeah. From the first meeting, I think, because we started talking about leather and Elvis and I started talking about it in 2010 and our R&D was ready to launch in maybe 2013. I think it was four years, but still it was four years. Four years, okay, yeah. yeah. Which was a long time to wait. But to be completely fair to them, they, they came and said very transparently, yep, we have a problem. We're happy to talk about that problem. We know that you're not going to give us exclusive access to this solution. We just want to help at scale. And it's been a really lovely partnership. Of course, I wanted it to do more, but working with big companies is never is never that easy. And I have over the years seen them make a lot of positive changes. And that's been interesting and an education for me to watch, but also quite painful because it really highlighted to me the failures of a shareholder structure. If the sustainability team at Burberry were in charge of the business, it would be a completely different kind of business. And it would have been a completely different kind of business a decade ago. But there's this problem of fiduciary duty and having to maximize shareholder value. It's not defined in the right way, is it? Fiduciary duty and stakeholder value is so badly defined. I, mean, I you know, we're, we're a B core as you are, but I um, get quite cross about basically about business ownership. I mean, it's just it, it needs to be owned in keeping with the need to, to, to deliver on purpose and planet and you know and, and people and planet. And um, it's difficult I, as, as being part of the B core movement. We wanted to do that because we think being part of a system of change is, is, a, is a more powerful thing, and also it helps us to learn and see where we're good and where we need to improve and so on. But I do feel that. If your ownership and your structure is not lined up, you're, you're really only doing a little bit of the game, really, aren't you? I definitely feel that. I know it because it's it's the law. You know, they're legally obliged to maximise shareholder value, and the law is the law is an ass. You know, the law is wrong. We need to change that. So I do like being part of a group that's saying, yes, we need the Better Business Act. We need to change the Companies Act. Because actually at the stroke of a pen, you could deliver all the things we've ever dreamed of. You could say that it, it should be illegal to profit if it's at the expense of the planet and its people. There you go. I say this in a public venue. I, I was at an amazing event yesterday in Newcastle called the Entrepreneurs Forum. And, and I said, look, there were several hundred people there. I was like, can, can anyone argue with that? 
Does anyone disagree with that? <laughs> and nobody does. Nobody will stand up and admit to it, at least. But if, if nobody will admit to it and nobody supports it, why is it the system that we've got? God, you're asking me questions now. Um. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Cafe Direct is older than us. So I'm hoping for some insight. No, but why Why is it? And I, I do think we all have to keep questioning that. And I love it when people then look at you with this sort of, I'm sure, the, the same patronizing face that Greta gets a lot of and says, oh, because, you know, it's really complicated. And I'm like, no, it actually isn't very complicated at all. You know, I remember this amazing newspaper article I read about an anthropologist who'd studied Walmart for years and found that the vast majority of its employees were reliant on food stamps and Medicaid and various other forms of state aid. And the, the conclusion was that Walmart wasn't a successful business. It was a state-sponsored enterprise. And I thought, okay, so why is there a family of billionaires that are profiting from that? That just shouldn't be allowed. We shouldn't accept that as the status quo because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to anyone other than to the billionaire. We could probably rant and, and talk about all kinds of stuff because you then have a world where inequality has exploded over 30 years. Well, longer probably, but particularly in 30 years. And you're almost at the point now where the billionaires are saying, well, actually, we'll give a bit of money to something. Aren't we wonderful? You're coming from such a wrong starting point. It's quite incredible. Yeah, we had um, an email from Amazon saying we'd really like to, 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 sell, to sell your product. And I just emailed back and said, it's very kind of you, but we can't sell with you because in order to sell with Amazon, we have to have goods in your warehouse. And we know that as soon as our goods are in your warehouse, they're under your control. We know that you destroy hundreds of thousands of pounds of goods that you don't deem to be moving fast enough on a weekly basis. And we couldn't stomach that happening to any of our items. Also, we feel that Amazon Prime is fueling unsustainable consumption. Why do you need a handbag to arrive in an hour? That just seems ridiculous. So I sent this email and the response I got back, I just was not expecting a response at all, but the response I got back was, well, Jeff's put um, 100 million into this Earth Prize. And I was like, how much has he put into the space program? Let's talk about his priorities. <laughs> Let's talk about his priorities. Yeah, no, I was talking to Peter Holbrook. We did a chat about this and we were both going, these bloody space programs, what a load of nonsense this stuff is. It, but it's happening and it's having phenomenal amounts of money. And it's getting all of this great press, which I just don't understand why the, why the journalists have stopped interrogating things. Yeah. It's not for public benefit. When it was NASA going to the moon in the 1960s, it was for public benefit. This is for private benefit. So yeah, it's completely, I, you know, it really, really reminds me, Elvis and I met in Hong Kong. And one of the things we used to get to do there a lot was sail because there's a lot of wealthy people in Hong Kong who have these enormous boats that you need crew for. So you need rail bait, basically. And these boats kept getting bigger because one guy would have a boat that was however many feet long and then the other guy would get a bigger boat and the other guy would get a bigger boat. And like they were running out of space in the harbour for this one-upsmanship and also they were running out of rail bait. It was funny to watch until until it became sad. Yeah, no, it, it is. But I, I find the space thing just astounding because you've got at least three billionaires doing it and it's clearly the stupid you know, hey is it up to it is up to them at the moment but you know it's absolutely mad oh from a carbon perspective from a fossil fuel perspective you couldn't be crazy yeah and and yet everybody's lapping it up 
and it's and they're doing it because they're not paying for it. So imagine the externalities, and that's the reason to get back to the externalities. They're not paying for the carbon cost of this uh, adventure. So that's the other reason why they can do it. You know, jet fuel is subsidized. Jet fuel has never paid the appropriate carbon tax. I mean, in the UK, what was that fantastic pre-COP announcement that they were going to eliminate the fossil fuel tax on domestic flights? I mean, that was just, I don't know, an own goal. I don't know how to describe that other than obscene. No, there's lots of things like that. The eBay for change thing, which I mean, we, we've looked at and I don't think we've done it, but I think it was something that Social Enterprise talked to us about. But um, how's that working? Is that working very well? I think it has the potential to work well, but it's there's there's some issues with it. The reason we we supported it is that I've always loved eBay as a platform, as a platform for selling secondhand goods. My entire wardrobe comes from eBay. It's I find it very bizarre that especially in high end fashion, there's hundreds of millions of pounds being raised to set up secondhand website sales for luxury goods, and I'm always just looking at it going there's already eBay. <laughs> like, why do you need to have a different platform? I've always loved the the focus there on reuse. But yes, they're trying to, you know, raise the profile of social enterprises. And I think that they started with 20 or 30. And we were happy to experiment with it and see how it went. Like, is there an appetite for people to buy goods like ours on, on a platform like eBay? It, I would say it's a slow start and it's a very complicated back end. eBay wasn't built on a Shopify platform, let's put it that way. So yeah, I think um, philosophically, it's got to be the, the place to be. And um, you live on a farm. Your business is based on a farm. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we we had a crazy pandemic because, well, I guess we're still, we're still in it, aren't we? But more than two years ago, Elvis and I knew at our previous location, we were out of space. And... A lot of businesses like ours would be based on an industrial state, and that's just not, I can't do that. And we started looking at farms because we're we're in Kent anyway, and farms are kind of close to where we were and our team was. And we thought, let's draw a little circle on a map and see if we can find a farm that will allow us to keep the team together. And our main thought was, if you buy a farm, there's this planning thing where if you have, if it's an actual farm, which is more than 12 acres, you are allowed to diversify your operations. You're allowed to have commercial workshops on them. And you should be able to build a, a building if there isn't a building already there with just you know prior notification, sort of 28 days notice. Of course, the farm we then found was in the an area of outstanding natural beauty, which means all bets are off. But we we looked at loads of farms and this one caught our eye for very specific Elvis and Cressy reasons. It had never been invested in. It doesn't have a big, beautiful listed manor house on it, which is great because listed manor houses can't ever be heated in an ecologically friendly way. It has a a very substandard bungalow on it, you know, which actually, if you just use, you know, you can rescue the envelope and turn into an eco Scandi house. And it had lots of barns. And I mean, the real kicker, I suppose, for me was that it had sort of 17 acres of completely degraded pasture to the extent that the people here before ran a turf cutting business. So they they literally sold their topsoil. So we weren't we weren't going to go and buy a beautiful farm that was perfect and wonderful with lots of earthworms. No, no, no. We wanted crappiest farm <laughs> we could find. But the main reason also to look at a farm was that we had started thinking about what does regenerative look like for us? So if we want to be, from a carbon perspective, a net carbon sink as a business, how do we do that? And 
there's this whole thing about offsetting, which, you know, for me, I think a business can offset in the short term on their way to eliminating carbon from their business, but it should never be like, oh, we're just going to offset. And I think the best way to think of that, someone, someone said, you can't get a good behavior offset from a friend. So I can't treat Elvis terribly by paying one of my friends to be really nice to her partner. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. What a great way of thinking about it. I think it's good, though, that you're you're sort of saying it, it's okay as long as you're on a journey and you can, uh, presumably, you can show me you're on that journey. Yeah, the data is important. So we, we just thought net regenerative, the best way to, to do this is going to be to do an agricultural project because we'd been intrigued by this, this idea of regenerative agriculture and the potential to increase carbon in the soil just by building soil health. You get all of these benefits from doing one activity. You get better water infiltration, which means you can retain water in the landscape. You get more microbiology in the soil, which means you don't need any other inputs. Like we're not having any sides or isers here. We're just, we're building our own compost also from wastes, making compost teas, drenching the land that way. Topsoil will be generated by the sand, the silt, the clay, and the chalk that's already in the ground, as long as we put the microbiology in it to unleash that. So you get all of these incredible benefits. Um, we also have sheep, so we're doing something called holistic planned grazing. You know, we've completely geeked out on this. Throughout the pandemic, we went basically back to our own version of university, listening to soil health specialists and podcasts and reading through textbooks. And and it was like, you know, I studied politics the first time around at university. And I, the whole time I was doing that, I loved it, but I didn't really love politics. And now I'm studying something that I really love and I really get to do because, you you know, you, you then put some of your dirt under a microscope and you get to see what's happening. So the, the idea for us was to do a regenerative agriculture project ourselves so that we could really understand it and see what transitioning a farm would look like. We could capture all the data around it. We could share the data around it. And when we bought this farm, we were also agnostic about what we were going to produce. You know, we did all this testing first to work out what is this farm good for? What is this landscape good for? And here's where we got really lucky. You know, it's 17 acres of south-facing chalk slope in Kent. So we're planting vines. <laughs> I wondered if that way might get there. Oh, fantastic. This is where farming is also wonderful because it's kind of fast and slow at the same time. In order to put in good vines, you have to order them a year in advance. So we were only able to order, even though we bought the farm last December, we only ordered the vines this summer and we're planting in April. But yeah, in April, 11,668 vines will go into the ground here. And in the meantime, we are amping up the microbiology in the soil. And the other thing we've done here, which is possibly, I mean, I definitely think it's the thing I'm the most proud of because every time someone comes to the farm, I'm like, can I show you our sewage treatment system? It's so cool. We've built a nature-based sewage treatment system and it is marvelous it's just wonderful it relies on centrifugal force to separate liquid from solid the solid goes into this series of chambers where we've got tiger worms that turn it into beautiful compost vermicast over an eight-month period the liquids go into a series of swales and ponds where because we worked with this genius called jay who's a microbiologist and he developed this system this wetland treatment system the planting that he's put in, which is just incredibly biodiverse. We're not talking reed bed. We're talking about just like something so much more advanced than that. The first swale picks out the, the big macronutrients and then the rest of them are all designed to pick out the next level and the next level and the next level. So instead of us having a sewage problem, 
we'll have willow and walnut and plum, all kinds of delightful things. You would not have got that on an industrial estate in Welling Garden City, to, to be no. fair. No. Even out here, our neighbours, it's quite funny because the neighbours come and they pop their eyes through the hedge going, what are these two people doing? What are these two people doing now? But how do you do it? Because you're, you're running a business, a wonderful business, and then you've got this, clearly, the things you're doing on your farm are quite remarkable as well. Do you get any spare time? No, and I think that's fine because what's that for? If you think about, I know people always talk about a work-life balance, but I don't see that that's something that we need because the work that we're doing here balances itself out because it's we're outside in nature enjoying it and and i just don't think we have time really for something like that it's not like we're surgeons and we deal with life and death situations and we need to go and decompress from that but even a surgeon who wanted to decompress i'm telling you come to the farm pick up a pitchfork (laughs) it happens pretty quickly do your 25 employees get involved in the farm that's kind of the idea behind it is that when the, the team here in Kent, we talked a long time about buying a farm. We talked a long time about the new workshop. We're building a straw bale uh, workshop on site. And we talked about how the rhythm of the handbag business actually is kind of seasonal. Like there's seasons where you're busier and seasons where you're less busy. And those coordinate incredibly well with when we'll be busy in the vineyard. So what we're our aim is, is to actually fatten up the team here and everybody to be trained in both things, everybody who wants to be, certainly. And then we just have a team that actually gets gets to be much happier because they all get more vitamin D and more exercise. And specifically in those winter months, you know, when you come to work in the dark and you leave in the dark. But if we get to chuck pruning in there, then on every sunny, crisp winter day, we'll all get time outside in the sun. It's fantastic. I mean, we, we're based in Hackney in the East End because the business has always been in Hackney even, so... Each time we looked at moving out of town, we then stayed there. You know, we've got employees who've been with us a long time who live there and it's sort of the, the heart and soul of it. I think we got lucky because Elvis and I moved out to Kent. That's when we, we all got our first employees out here. So everybody is local to here. And when we found the farm, that was the miracle of it too, is that it was just so close to our old site that it didn't really affect anyone's commute at all. They just commute in a slightly different direction. And they were all car sharing anyway, so it's just great. How do you and Elvis operate the business, build the culture, work together? What what are the kind of principles? How do you behave, as it were? I don't think we have a specific set of rules on this one. Certainly Elvis is a very detail-minded person who's incredibly conscientious. And for sure, for sure, we're both workaholics. So when people arrive in the morning, we're already here. We're already working. When people leave at the end of the day, we're still here. We're still working. So I suppose that models a certain kind of behavior. But the biggest thing is that it is a small team. Kindness is sort of at the at the core of it. We are kind to everybody. We treat everyone with a lot of respect. And that sets the tone in the workshop. And everybody's pretty tight as a result of that. It feels a lot, especially right now, because the business is based in the farmhouse at the farm because we haven't got the workshop built yet and who knows when we're going to get the workshop built because Brexit and COVID have slowed construction down to a snail's pace. But, uh, you know, we're we're actually in the house. We eat together in the kitchen of the farmhouse. Yeah, I think it's really good that you don't, you know, people don't have to write down a set of values on the wall or something. They can just be authentic and be, you know, let the way you do stuff be the way it, talks to people rather than putting the words on the wall sort of thing 
I think you have to do that with larger companies, but not when it's all here. I mean, in my first employee handbook that we we had to, I think we had to write, it was one sentence. I just put, if you litter, you're fired. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. It's like, this is, you know, we're waste people. And that was it. And yeah, and now it's like, be nice to everyone and look after everyone. And, but it, you can't put that in a handbook and expect it to happen. You have to model that. And you have to talk to, to people in the team if they're not modeling that behavior. No, fantastic. Cressy, thank you so much for joining us. It's fantastic listening to you and so inspiring to hear about everything and to feel your enthusiasm and commitment to really making change where it's needed. Join us next time on Building Better Business.